as I was thinking about this service, <clears throat> I was thinking about your role as educators, and I've We've always heard teaching is such a noble profession, and I would just um, sat down, and I had three ideas that popped in my head. They happened to all start with the letter S, and the first is I realized that teaching is a noble profession because it's selfless, it's sacrificial, and it, is, it must be strategic. It's selfless because you're giving someone else something which will be for their benefit and not for yours. Now, you know that. It's sacrificial because it requires an enormous amount of time not only in preparation as well as actual teaching time and grading papers and all the meetings and other things that has to have to take place. And somehow, the pay, the compensation, never seems to be quite commiserate to the effort and energy required. And most every teacher that I know is underpaid. And all the teachers said, that was kind of weak. All the teachers said, <laughs> okay. But it is sacrificial. It's also strategic. <clears throat> and that's because... Every student has their, has their own way of learning. One size does not fit all. Um, and the discriminating teacher has to determine the best way to break through the mind of each student, to give that student the best opportunity at learning the subject matter as best they can. And it is true. Everyone has their own way of learning. Some people learn by reading it out of a book, and that's how they get it. And then uh, some people have to hear it communicated. Uh, to fully understand. They're never going to get it out of a book, but they have to hear it. And then others have to touch and feel it and see for themselves and grasp it. I think we call that visual learning, auditory learning, and kinesthetic learning. And then uh, there's a couple of other things. Some have to learn from what we were going to call the opposite perspective or the opposite approach. In other words, tell me what it's not so that that helps me to better understand what it is. That's going to tie into our, our message in just a moment. Learning from the opposite perspective, and that's not only true in school, but it's also true in life. All of those learning methods are, are true in life. And did you ever notice, talking about learning from the opposite perspective, did you ever notice growing up that when you observed some people, someone that you admired, someone that you respected, someone you looked up to, you really, you wanted to be like them when you grew up? Is that true for anybody? Is that true for anybody? Okay. And then did you ever find some people that you observed and yet you hopefully quietly said to yourself, I don't ever want to be like that. I got a louder amen than the first one did. Okay. Well, the, the reality of it is we all become shaped and molded by our learning experiences in life, both positive and negative, which is why the job of the teacher today is so very, very critical because our teachers are put in a place of great influence over very young, impressionable young lives. Um, before I finished these thoughts and going down this line of thinking in my mind, I, I thought, you know, there's yet another way that people learn, and that's called learning it the hard way. Are there any who know, understand that? Okay. It, it just seems to be that some folks have a great uh, propensity toward that being the only way they can learn anything. Maybe you have a child who has, it just seems like every lesson they have to learn, that they, that they learn, they have to learn it the hard way. And uh, there's just no easy way for them to, to learn it. Um, then I was thinking about the fact that uh, in life, how many of you wish you had had a manual or a textbook for areas of your life where you knew you were in over your head? Raise your hand. If you wish you'd had a manual, how many wish they had sent a manual home with that first baby when they came home? 
Yeah, we didn't get one. I don't know where ours was, but we, we didn't get one. But we often wish we had some textbook or some manual to help us uh, surviving our own teenage years or, or surviving uh, the um, strategy of dating and courtship. Or maybe uh, we wish we'd had the textbook for marriage or for raising a child, and I'm kind of going through it chron- uh, chronologically. Or maybe dealing with stubborn adult parents. How many wish you had? No, don't answer that. You may be sitting next to them. Well, the truth is, church, and you know this, we do have a manual. We do have a textbook for life, yet all too often we try to figure out things on our own without consulting the best textbook that we could ever have, which is the Word of God. Can I get an amen to that this morning? I want to take you to a verse of Scripture and ask you to just consider it with me as I bring this to you today. It's one of those verses that is quite all-encompassing and, uh, and it's certainly worthy of our full attention this morning. If you have your Bibles or your device, you want to turn, go to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, <clears throat> and I'm going to read uh, from verse 4. And I'm going to use this as an anchor text that I will come back and refer to a couple of times. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. These things were written in the Scriptures long ago. This is Paul instructing us. These things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us, and the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Paul is simply saying to the Romans that the stories from the Old Testament, they are rich in providing lessons for life. They are, they are rich in their ability to teach us and show us the way that we should go. And when we have questions about encounters that we have in life, there is so much wealth in the Old Testament stories. Paul's saying that there's great value in learning the life story of Abraham and David and Moses and all the others. And by his statement in this verse saying that that's why they were given to us, to instruct us, he's telling us that these stories are, they're not just stories of the past, but they are also stories that we can claim and we can certainly learn from them, for they have been given to us. They are gifts to us to teach us. And so therefore, Paul is saying that when you read the story of one of the Old Testament saints, you need to not only think of it as history, but you need to read it with yourself and and your life and your circumstance in mind and see how that story applies to you because there is instruction in there, according to Paul. There is instruction in there for you. And that's even true for the stories that we have in the Old Testament that do not end with, and they lived happily ever after. Sometimes, again, it's, it's that opposite perspective uh, coming from the, the, the negative side of it. Sometimes those stories, they're a warning to us to say, don't let their story become your story. Don't let the decisions that they made be that which guides you in the decisions that you are needing to make. It's that opposite approach to learning. And in saying this, Paul is challenging that phrase, which is part of our culture, and that phrase we know so well, which, which says this, experience is the best, experience is the best teacher. Well, I don't know that that's always necessarily true, and I don't know that it has to be true. If I take that phrase at its surface value, that means that I have to experience something to know if it's right or wrong. And that's what some people would refer to somewhat as the definition of existentialism. Don't tell me 
if it's right or wrong. I'll experience, experience it for myself, and then I'll decide if it's right or wrong. And Paul is trying to help us understand that we don't have to walk through every experience. We've been given the luxury, we've been given the benefit of learning from so many of these Old Testament, particularly Old Testament stories. I don't have to experience drugs to know that it's harmful to my body. I don't have to experience immorality to know that it will destroy my marriage. We don't have to experience to know that. We we can know those things. It was one of the early church fathers, Ignatius, who said, uh, well, let me give the quote. He says, we believe that we know better than God what is best for our lives. That is what prompts us to go down this experiential path in life. We need to experience it all. We need to decide for ourselves because we've decided we know better than God which is exactly where we can get in trouble with this thing we call experience. So I would propose to you this morning to reconsider that phrase. Instead of experience is the best teacher, why don't we consider evaluated experience can be the best teacher. Paul is telling us to look at the stories of the Old Testament, to follow through on their thought process as as best we can from the narrative given to us, and to follow the decision-making and see what the end result was of that decision-making. Learn from the good decisions and learn from the mistakes that are made. And in so doing, what he's saying to us, they are there for our instruction. Therefore, we can take ownership of these Old Testament stories. And just to prove Paul's point, how many of you wish you had, you had listened or learned from other people's mistakes rather than create your own mess? Anybody? But our problem most of the time is, uh, truth is, the problem most of our time is our own negligence because we often fail to study God's Word as we should. Someone gave me this. They said, an unread Bible is like having a check that you've never cashed. An unread Bible is like having a meal that you've never eaten. An unread Bible is like having a gift that's still sitting there under the tree because you never opened it for Christmas. An unread Bible is like a map that you've never opened to find direction. And Paul is reminding us, you need to read your Bible. Who can say amen to that today? Because there are stories there, according to Paul in Romans, that they are there to teach us and instructions. Are there stories of adultery and immorality? Yes. But there are also stories of young people who kept their purity and lived for God. There are people who have, who have lost a child, lost a wife, or had the death of a friend. And Paul says, look at these stories, people going bankrupt, betrayal that takes place, false accusations, getting through difficult times. He says, read the stories of, of, of believers who, who became amazing witnesses in very anti-Christian environments. Boy, that would be good for us today. And we get the privilege of seeing them and the process from beginning to end. It is already played out for us in the Word of God. And Paul says, read them, take value from them, because they are stories that are there for your instruction and there for your benefit. Stories of people with messed up parents who were still used by God. And, and, and stories of people who had great parents, but they still messed up. It's all there. Well, I want us to look at one of these stories in just the few minutes that remain here today. I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. It's a familiar story to you. Certainly, if you grew up in Sunday school or grew up in church, you will know the details of it. It's the story of Jacob and Esau when they are born, and we know that they are twins. 
And from their very birth, there is struggle and contention. The Bible says that even in their mother's womb, there was struggle and, and contention. And she was questioning God why, why that is the case. But before this chapter, Gen, uh, Genesis chapter 25, before the chapter ends, describing their birth and taking us somewhere into their teen years, possibly their early 20s, we learn of the selling of Esau's birthright. Who remembers that story from Sunday school? The selling of Esau's birthright. Okay. And the vulnerable moment is found in verse 29 of this chapter 25 of Genesis. Verse 29 says this. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau actually got his other name, Edom, which means red. And here's where the interesting part really starts. Verse 31. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? So we see in that moment he's influenced by his current condition, which is he's starving, okay? Now, we know he's, it's not really true, isn't it interesting how a tired and a hungry moment will make you exaggerate? Has that ever happened to you? I am really hungry. I'm dying of starvation. Well, no, you're not dying. You're just really, really hungry. And so what happens is this. Jacob the deceiver preys upon the vulnerable moment of his brother. And he says this in verse 33. Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So... He was so hungry, he wanted that stew. Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then he got up and left. And the Bible says, and he, Esau, showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. What does that mean, he showed contempt? Well, it means that he didn't show the respect or the honor, he didn't give the honor to his birthright, understanding the, he didn't give it its proper value. He just gave it away and walked away. Here's what I find interesting, church. Isn't it interesting that the enemy knows exactly when to show up in our lives? He knows exactly when you will be the most vulnerable. He knows when to put a boiling pot of lentil soup on the burner, and he knows when to put it on for you. He'll have a pot of stew for you when you're tired. He'll have a pot of stew, stew all brewing there uh, when you are vulnerable, and he knows the exact moment when to put it on. And notice that the test comes when Esau is weary and he's famished. I hope you have learned the life lesson. I hope I have learned the life lesson. Never make decisions when you are tired and weary. If you've ever done that, you realize it's not a good thing to do. Never make decisions when you are tired and weary. And, you know, our, our kids figure this out. How many know that your child has figured out how to wear you down with their asking? Hello? 
And they just keep after you, and they keep coming after you, and keep coming. They want this, and they want this. And finally, you are just so tired and fed up, and they know that you will ultimately give in just to get them off your back. Yes, you can go play in the mud. Yes, that's fine. Yes, you can have all the chocolate in the house. Just don't wake me up from my nap. That's the way we feel. Well, somehow Esau didn't know this all-important truth, that when you're tired, there's something you should do when you're tired. You should press that big old pause button before you make any kind of decision that's changing or altering your life. And guess what? I'm sure you found that the temptations are always there to make a pressured decision. Things like, well, if you don't take this apartment, I've got, I've got 10 more people in line behind you. They, they, they want this apartment. Or, or the sale price we're giving you on this car is only good for right now. You walk away, it's going to be a new price. How many of you heard that one before? Or, or, or how about this? If you really love me, we'll get married on Thursday. Well, I want to remind you through what we see that took place with Esau that God has supplied us with a big pause button. Say that, say those two words, pause button. It's there for us to use when those pressurized decisions are, are, are facing us. And particularly when we're tired. We don't have our full capacity to reason and to bring good sense. And, and are, are these decisions often fraught with urgency? Yes, of course they are. But it's not urgency that should control us. The Bible says in Colossians that the peace of Christ should be that which controls us. Hello. When I'm being pressured for a decision, I try to remember three words. I think they're going to put them up for us here. They all start with a P. Pause. Say it. Pray. And wait for peace. Say it again. Pause. Pray. And wait for peace. Because if there is no peace of Christ, then we should not proceed with anything. Regardless of the urgency that is pressing in, regardless of the urgency that is playing with the decision. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever signed papers that you wish later you had not signed? I'm not talking about your marriage certificate. I don't mean that. You've ever signed papers that you wish you had not signed. I'll never forget my early years of our marriage. My father-in-law was in a situation, no need to go into the details of it, and he was very tired one night, was needing to sell uh, some property, and, and he signed it away, and the next morning, he regretted it instantly because he did it when he was tired. You know, that's, that's why God has given us this pause button. Pause Pray and wait for peace. I would venture to say that most of the time where there's pressure to a decision and you make a decision under pressure, you will regret it later. It is far better to pause, pray, and wait for peace. Say it again. And that's what should have happened in this story with Jacob and Esau. Esau was in a very vulnerable, tired, and famished condition, and Jacob, his brother, takes advantage of him. He pressures him. And what should have happened is what we should do. Esau should have said, wait, let me just pause. Why? Because I need time to pray. Why? Because I need the peace of God. So why was this birthright so important? We don't have, from Scripture, we don't have full knowledge about all the, the birthright and what all it entailed. It could have included and probably included some sorts of jewelry, a ring, a necklace, a bracelet, or an article of clothing. The best we know is that it probably had to do with, uh, with receiving goods and position. 
which means that to sell your birthright, here's what it meant for Esau. It means he was selling his privilege to lead the family and the next generation. He handed that over for a bowl of soup. His privilege of leading the family, the next generation. He was bargaining away his influence and his future for stew. He bargained away his voice to lead for a bowl of stew simply because the stew was cooking at the right time. What did he sell? He sold his future. And to make matters worse, once he had sold it and after he had eaten the stew, he despised it and just walked away. And then something very interesting happened. If you turn over to chapter 27 of Genesis, you'll find that the story reappears. And we see that Jacob ends up stealing not only Esau's birthright, but also he ends up stealing the blessing prayer that comes from his father Isaac. And in this event here in chapter 27, where Jacob is now about to, about to take the blessing from his father Isaac, which should belong to Esau, I believe the first event of Jacob stealing um, his, his, uh, Jacob stealing his brother's birthright is still in the heart of Esau. And here's what I mean by that. Listen to me carefully. Whenever you see old stuff coming up in new arguments, do you know what that means? It means something has not been resolved. Whenever, if you get in another tense discussion with someone and, and the old stuff comes back up, it means that that old stuff has never been resolved. Let me give it to you another way. Whenever you get hysterical and you become historical, I think you get it. And clearly we see that the issues were not resolved for Esau. For now, in another intense moment, Jacob now steals. He's already got the birthright. Now he's about to steal the blessing from his father. And you remember what happens. Rebecca, mom, comes in and says to Jacob, her boy that she loves so much, listen, Jacob, I want you to get this blessing from your dad. So I'm going to go prepare the, you go get, you go kill the goats and bring them, and I'm going to prepare the goat meat for dad, and, and then here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to glue hair all over you so that you will appear to look like your brother Esau. Is that crazy or what? And we're going to have you, we're going to do whatever we have to do to make you smell like your brother. We're going to send you out in the field, and, and, and you, you need to feel like your brother, and you need to smell like your brother because your dad's blind now, and he won't know the difference. And when Jacob goes before his dad... His father says, and what is your name? We know that Jacob lies at that point, and he says, I am Esau. Why did he say that? He wanted the blessing. And here's what's amazing. Jacob was asked that question twice in his life, if you recall the rest of the story. The second time he was asked that question, it was from God. It happens when Jacob wrestles with the angels in Genesis chapter 32. So, so why, why would God who is all-knowing and, all, and omniscient, and he clearly knows who Jacob is, why would God ask him his name? Let me tell you what I think. I think because the first time he was asked that, he lied about it. He told his father he was somebody else. And now God is asking him this. And now because, not because God doesn't know who he is, I think God is making sure that Jacob knows who he is. And this time he, was, he had to respond, and he responded with the words, I am Jacob, or what he was actually saying, saying is, I am the deceiver. 
Now we see that Jacob has stolen the birthright and the blessing from Esau. So back in Genesis 27, Esau gets the news that he's had both take the birthright and the blessing taken from him. And here's what he exclaimed in verse 36 of chapter 27. He says, no wonder his name is Jacob, for he's now cheated me twice. And he's about to get historical. First, he took my rights as the firstborn. And now he has stolen my blessings. And then Esau is bringing up that which was never resolved. And pretty much the story ends for Esau. We really don't see much of him until a late, little later on in Jacob's life. But I'm going to take you back to our anchor scripture. I'm going to make a point here I want you to listen carefully to. Romans 15 says, These things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. So Dan, what are we supposed to learn from this? Oh, what, what, what do we do with it? What, what, what are you saying is in that? I mean, we don't have birthrights today, and you don't really often hear blessing prayers. That doesn't seem to be part of our, our culture. So what's the instruction to us? Well, I'm glad you asked, because here's where it gets really interesting. Hang on. Thousands of years later, this story gets brought up again in two verses in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Let's see what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 15. This is thousands of years later. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. But it was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. Thousands of years later, Bethesda, the Holy Spirit thought it appropriate and a good thing to bring up this story once again from Genesis. This story that most of us who read it in Sunday school or were taught it in Sunday school just thought it was another Sunday school story and didn't capture all that much meaning from it. But the writer to the Hebrews decides there is something in this story, something that has taken place that we're going to need. Because don't forget, everything Paul said to the Romans was written for our instruction. My learning about life does not have to be simply based upon my own experience. I can learn a life lesson from what is given to us in the story. So I want to give you three quick thoughts before we close today. I want, to, I want to leave this with you. Number one, if you're taking notes, here's number one. Isn't it interesting that the writer to the Hebrews in verse 15, chapter 12, he calls bitterness a root in verse 15. You know what I think that means? You know why I think he calls bitterness a root? It means that it's deep and unseen. He doesn't call it, um, he doesn't say, he said it's a root of bitterness. He doesn't call it a cloud of bitterness. He doesn't call it a crown of bitterness, which would be visible for all to see. No, it's a root of bitterness because it goes deep, it's beneath the ground, and it is unseen. And it means that in moments where, where things get intense and where things heat up for you again, it can show up then. 
Oh, when Esau said, oh, he took my blessing. And, and, and I remember that he took my birthright also. Because here's something we need to always remember. What you don't resolve will show up again at another time, at another place. What you do not resolve will show up again at another time, at another place. And guess what? I don't know what your experience is, but my experience is this. Roots are very hard to pull out. And the Hebrew writer, writer to the Hebrews, calls bitterness a root. This tells us something. When you understand this bitterness as a root, it tells us that whatever the enemy does to us, he's trying to find a way to get in us. Think on that for just a moment. What are you facing in your own life currently? How is the enemy attacking you right now? Whatever he is using, and you may be aware of whatever spiritual warfare that you're going through. Some people are, some people aren't, some people are just mystified at what's taking place in their life. When all the while the enemy is absolutely coming after you in a buffeting fashion or, or an attacking fashion. And we just think, well, it's just bad time. No, what the enemy is trying to do to you, he's actually trying to do in you. If he can make the damage that he's doing to you go inward, then he has succeeded. He's trying to establish a root. He's trying to establish in us, in you and in me, something that will not easily let go. Because the enemy is always looking for depth, not surface. Always looking for depth, not surface. Why roots? Why would it be a root? Because roots are hard to pull. You can pull off a weed. We can weed our garden area, our, our flower beds, pull off this weed. and that. But if you do not get to the root, guess what? That thing's going to keep popping up. And the next time it comes, what? It's going to be bigger. That's the way it works. If you do not extract the root, then more can come up, which happens to be the next thing that the writer of the Hebrews says. He says, if you don't get the root, then many can be defiled by what's inside of you. If you don't get the root, he says, or some versions say many can be defiled. Others say you others will corrupt many. The version we read this morning said it will corrupt many. Number two, bitterness can splash on lots of other people around you. Your bitterness does not just pollute you. It can pollute others in your world. Oh, my goodness. Think of what happens with our children, how easily we can so infect our own children with our own sense of bitterness. You know, if we're not cautious with our tongue within our own homes, we can cause little ones to have a resentment against someone they don't even know. Am I telling the, the truth today? If you're loose with your tongue about people at home, your child doesn't probably even know that person. The next time they see them, they go, hmm, I've heard about you. It's because what's happening in that case is your root of bitterness is corrupting many, is what the Scripture says. That's exactly the way it happens. When people feel free to talk about, when we feel free to talk about other people's business in front of your children, instead of being quiet about it and dealing with it in our own heart, then we are doing exactly what the Hebrews writer says you will do with a root of bitterness. You will corrupt many. Number one, bitterness is a root, which means it goes deep, it is unseen, and it's hard to pull out. Number two, it can corrupt many. It's not just you that is affected. It's everyone in your world that is affected. But here's the part 
that got my attention. That I, I looked at that, I looked at that. You know, I was using a hopefully common sense to see the natural progression of this. And this messed with my head. It's not a progression that I would have necessarily put together. It, it wasn't, didn't naturally come to me. Verse 16, I read it just a second ago. It says this, the writer of the Hebrews says, Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. What? Really? I mean, I, 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 get, the, I get the bitterness part. I understand that. I, I understand how bitterness can corrupt many. I've seen plenty of examples of that. But why, how, where, how, how did we jump to immorality? I didn't read anything in that Genesis story that spoke of, of immorality. I, I didn't see that at all. Why would the writer to the Hebrews use that terminology? And it's kind of hard to get around what it means. Immoral, it's sexual sin or being sexually unrestrained. Let me give you just a little quick story. Pastor friend of mine, dear, dear friend, tells of a time when he had a few extra minutes in the airport and he casually found his way into a store that sold watches. They weren't all that expensive, but he thought they were kind of cool and he liked them, kind of, you know, younger, fashionable looking thing of some kind. Well, the young lady minding the store was sitting toward the back. She was texting something on her phone or didn't seem to be all that enthused that my pastor friend had, had walked into the store. In fact, he would say it almost appeared as though his walking in was an interruption to whatever she was doing. So he said, excuse me, ma'am, can, can, I, can I see a watch here? He was standing in front of a certain showcase. Can I, can I see a watch here? And she went... She put her phone down. She walked to the case where he's standing, never saying a word. She stands there. She stands there in front of the case with the watches. And so he said, um, um, he's kind of wondering why. He says, can I, can I see that one? And she just stood there. So he started to ask again, and he, she could tell he was going to ask the same question again. So she interrupted, interrupted him, and she said, do you want to see it or do you want to hold it? He said, well, I can see it. I, I, I just wanted to, and she interrupted and said, well, I'm just doing what you said. You're looking at it already. If you had said you wanted to hold it, I would have taken it out of the case for you. So she took it out of the case. But by this point, guess what? He had totally lost interest in a watch. He was done. He said, thank you very much, and he walked out. Well, the story that my pastor friend tells me goes like this. He says, you know what? As I walked to the gate, I felt the Holy Spirit say something to me that I was not expecting. I felt the Holy Spirit speak in my heart saying this. I want you to go back and apologize. And he said the first thing that came to my, his mind was this. I bind you, Satan, in Jesus' name. I mean, you and I would be just like him. He's thinking, I'm not the one with the attitude. Gurley over there has the attitude. But he said, the problem was this. The more I walked, the further I walked to my gate, the more convicted I became. Here's where I need you to follow me. 
How did the writer to the Hebrews get from bitterness to immorality? That is not a natural progression in our minds. But clearly the writer says bitterness is a root. It's a root that can corrupt or defile many. And then don't be like a person of immorality like Esau. And it seems so strange to me until, bing, it hits you. And it's this. Bitterness, not many people realize this, is not really between you and another person. Bitterness is between you and God. Let me explain. In order to carry bitterness and in order for it to grow deep as a root, it means this, church, listen to me, listen, listen. It means you have to blow by, you have to ignore every conviction that the Holy Spirit has put on you every single time he speaks to you. Every time that he tells you, go back and deal with that. How does it become a root? By ignoring the points of conviction. And if God's grace is upon you, you will have point after point after point until that voice gets quieter and quieter. And what happens is you ignore the voice of God that says you've been offended. You're bitter towards your wife. You're bitter towards your husband. You're bitter towards your workmate. You're bitter toward a church member, a parent, a teacher, a pastor. Remember that hurt which is not dealt with will turn into bitterness. And do you want to know what bitterness really is? Listen to me carefully. Bitterness is spiritual unfaithfulness. Bitterness is spiritual unfaithfulness. How, please tell me, how can we who need daily forgiveness keep bitterness and unforgiveness alive in our own hearts? And folks will say to me, well, pastor, I'm just here at church to mind my own business and to worship God. And my response is, I don't buy it. And here's why. The Word of God says this, if you enter a place of worship and are about to make an offering and you suddenly remember a grudge you have against someone, leave your offering there immediately, go to that friend, make things right, and then and only then come back and bring your worship to God. That's what the book says. Which means this, every time you're about to clap your hands with Pastor Brent, nope, go take care of that issue with your brother or sister. Every time you do not yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that root gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper when the reality of it is that thing needs to be uprooted in your life. And it is the voice of the Holy Spirit that is bringing that to your mind. We try to cover it up so often with clapping, We'll cover it up with raised hands. We'll cover it up with singing when all the while bitterness, that root of bitterness is going deeper and deeper. So how do you get from bitterness to immorality? Here's what I think the writer to the Hebrews was saying. You take it before the Lord and see if it's what he says to you. If you're ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit about even a small offense, something that we could excuse or toss off in any number of ways. If you're ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit about even a little offense, when the other trials and temptations come, what makes you think you will listen to the Holy Spirit then? 
When any little root is allowed to have place within us, it then establishes the possibility of any size root to exist within us. And thus we have what I'm calling today the shocking progression of Hebrews. From bitterness to bitterness that corrupts many to immorality. And the word of the Lord to us this morning is simply this, church. We must read the word. We must know the word. We must listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he gives us guidance and direction and, yes, conviction. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. Pastor Brent, if you'll come. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis when he says, We forgive. And a week later, some chain of thought carries us back to the original offense. And we find the old resentment welling up again. Has that ever happened to any of us? Sure it has. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say, that's why we need to forgive our brother 70 times 7. Not only for 490 offenses, but sometimes that one offense needs to be forgiven 490 times. And that's because of this. Junk is always wanting and trying to come back, particularly the next time you smell the pot of stew. And when it does come back, when it does happen, and it happens to all of us, I'm telling you the same thing I'm telling myself. Our response should be this. When that gets brought to your mind, I've had it happen several times this week. I had something happen on a certain day, and the next morning, uh, as I woke in the morning, it was the first thought that was there. I need to go take care of that. Our response should be this. God, thank you for your conviction. How many of you are truly thankful for the conviction of God in the house today? God, thank you for your conviction. Therefore, my response and the only appropriate response is this. I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. And therefore, church, this Old Testament story is vibrant and vital for us today. Because God, since you have forgiven me time and time and time again. How many are forgiven in the house today? How many are thankful that you're forgiven in the house today? Since God has forgiven us time and time and time again, I shall forgive others. I refuse to allow that root of bitterness to grow within me for the glory of the name of Jesus. Stand with me in this house today.